Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. That is what Rahm Emanuel famously said. I will ask the former White House Chief of Staff and former Chicago Mayor his thoughts on how we should use this crisis. Also, China's been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. The Trump administration seems headed toward a cold war with China. Richard Haas, a Republican and advisor to three presidents, explains why this is a dangerous strategy. And how to live life after the lockdown. Doctor, author, and New Yorker staff writer Atul Gawande gives us his prescriptions, ones that have been tested and work. Finally, the French have come a long way from the long fable lion, let them eat cake. So what are they being encouraged to eat now? Stay tuned and find out. But first, here's my take. If anyone thought a global pandemic that has so far killed more than 85,000 Americans would override the country's partisan divide, think again. It turns out that Democrats are significantly more likely than Republicans to believe that the pandemic is serious and to follow CDC guidelines. Preliminary studies using cell phone data show that people in more Republican areas of the country have been moving around more than in Democratic areas. This has led many to wonder why partisanship has become so strong in the U.S. that people will not listen to experts even at the risk of their own health. But there's a broader distrust that we need to understand. I recognized it while reading a book that is not about COVID-19 at all, but shed strong light on the situation explaining why so many people across the West, really, have rejected the establishment. Michael Lind writes in The New Class War, the issue is not the issue. The issue is power. Social power exists in three realms, government, the economy, and the culture. Each of these three realms of social power is the site of class conflict. Lind argues that the best way to understand America today is through this lens of class conflict, which has been sharpened by the rise of an overclass that dominates the three spheres he mentions. In all three, leaders tend to be urban, college-educated professionals, often with a postgraduate degree, and that makes them quite distinct from much of the rest of the country. Only 36% of Americans have a bachelor's degree, and only 13% have a master's or more. And yet, the top ranks everywhere are filled with this credentialed overclass. For many non-college-educated people, especially those living in rural areas, there is a deep alienation from this new elite. They see the overclass as enacting policies that are presented as good for the whole country, but really mostly benefit people from the ruling class, whose lives have gotten better over the past few decades while the rest are left behind. 
in this field, trade and immigration, for example, help college-educated professionals who work for multinational companies but hurt blue-collar workers. So when they hear from the experts about the inevitability of globalization and technological change and the need to accept it, they resist. It does not resonate with their lived experience. So let's look at the COVID-19 crisis through this prism. Imagine you're an American who works with his hands, a truck driver, a construction worker, an oil mechanic, and you've just lost your job because of the lockdowns, as have over 36 million people. You turn on the television and you hear medical experts, academics, technocrats, journalists explain that we must keep the economy closed. In other words, we must keep you unemployed because public health is important. Now, all these people making the case on TV have jobs, have maintained their standards of living, and in fact are now in greater demand. They feel they're doing important work. You, on the other hand, have lost your job. You feel a sense of worthlessness and you are terrified about your family's day-to-day survival. Is it so hard to understand why people like this might be skeptical of the experts? The COVID-19 divide is a class divide. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released a report last year on the job flexibilities of U.S. employees. Of the top 25% of income earners, more than 60% can stay home and still do their jobs. Of the bottom 25% of income earners, fewer than 10% can work from home. In the early days of the crisis, only 13% of people in households making over $100,000 were laid off or furloughed, compared to 39% in households making less than $40,000. Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that he understands that maintaining these social distancing guidelines is inconvenient for many people. They're not just inconvenient. They are life-shattering. No one in America or elsewhere has all the knowledge to formulate the perfect formula to open up and move ahead. Even Dr. Fauci acknowledged that during congressional testimony this week when he was asked whether schools should open. I don't have an easy answer to that. I just don't, he said. Situations regarding school will be very different in one region versus another. Regarding the economy, he noted, I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. So let's all recognize that we need to hear many voices as we make these difficult decisions and that those making the decisions need to have empathy for all Americans, those whose lives are at risk, but also those whose lives have been turned upside down in other ways by this horrible disease. To read and comment on my Washington Post column, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and let's get started. The people want to get on with their lives. That is what President Trump tweeted on Thursday in response to a Wisconsin court decision that effectively ended the governor's lockdown there. The president wants to open quickly in opposition to some state and local politicians around the country. My first guest, Rahm Emanuel, has worked everywhere, from the White House to City Hall. He's been a congressman from Illinois, chair of the House Democratic Caucus, President Obama's chief of staff, and most recently, mayor of Chicago. Welcome back to the show, Ram. Thank you, Fareed. So um, how should we think about this, this debate? Uh, is it time to open up? How should we open up? 
You know, Farid, I actually think that's uh, slightly uh, off kilter a little. The debate is not really about reopening, which is somewhat where the, that's where the president is, and other people, governors and others, are coming across as reluctant or resistant. I actually think Democrats in the country should be having a debate. You want to reopen? I want to rebuild America. I want to actually invest in America. You have 35 million Americans unemployed. What if we said to Americans in the retail sector, we're going to train you not only, we're not only going to give you unemployment, your job, we're going to train you to become a computer coder and use this period of time or somebody in cybersecurity and use this time. You're not going to school, we're going to rebuild our schools. You're not driving and there's not commuters on mass transit and roads, we're going to rebuild all those because when they're not used, we can get the work done cheaper and more and quicker. We should have a, the president wants to be in the point of reopening. I want the Democrats, speaking large, to rebuilding America. America never lost a challenge when it invested either in America or Americans. And when we do that, that should be the message. Right now, but, I think but, it's but, a wrong but, Rob, how do you, how, one between how do you, real, go How do you rebuild the roads, the infrastructure, the schools, if everything's closed? I mean, the point is, and of course, there are going well, to be no, millions no, well, of Americans of, who can't, well, you know, a 50-year-old truck for, driver for is not going to become a coder. No, wait, well, wait a second. Go ask the J.C. Penney employee right now. Go ask the person that used to work at the desk at Neiman Marcus. Those jobs, there's a lot of jobs not coming back. And rather than say they're not coming back, which has been what our tone has been for 40 years, I would say, look, there's going to be a transition, and we're going to invest in you so you succeed in that transition. Take this whole, I was listening to what you were saying earlier. I don't buy into this category, you're essential, you're not essential. We don't have a person to waste in America in the 21st century. Everybody is essential. And our goal is to invest in your essentialness but, to the future. But, but Rob, if I can be honest, you're, you're can, alighting the question of should these states start reopening? That's really the question. I mean, yeah, well, you know, or, a, or are you saying keep them, keep them locked down and keep having the government print more money, borrow no. more money and pay them? I, it, well, know. first of all... First of all, we're, we're going to, as uh, the Fed chair said, we've got to continue to have monetary and fiscal stimulus. So we're going to make this. My question is, do we give you an unemployment check or do we give you an unemployment check to hold on but also retrain you so as the economy comes back, you are able to succeed in that economy? That's the question. I actually disagree. It's only, that's a false choice, reopening or not. And the fact is, the way you do it is you do it with a plan that integrates health care, life, and livelihood. Those are our two goals, not in opposition, but collaboratively. And I think it's a false choice. The president wants you to say it's reopened or not, and that's not the way to look at it. And, you know, national crises require national leadership, and there hasn't been any of that. And so we basically sent a bunch of mayors and governors out and said, go figure it out on your own without a national plan. We've never met a national crisis without a national plan or succeeded without one. And I do think when kids aren't in school, modernize the schools. When commuters aren't using the roads, go out and build those roads in mass transit. In fact, it's more cost effective to do that. And construction's going on on high rises. You can't tell me you can't go out and build a school and go build a community college and go build roads in mass transit system. Construction is happening in, uh, all across the country. The problem is states can't access the resources because gas taxes are down. And the federal government can, in fact, take the resources, and do a real rebuilding of America. 
And that, to me, is what is a missed opportunity. As somebody once said, never allow a good crisis to go to waste. How many times have we talked about investing in people's skills to skill up in the economy? How many times have we talked about having a 21st century transportation system for a 21st century economy? This is the opportunity to rebuild America, not just reopen it to where there are no retail jobs coming back. A good right. portion of the people unemployed, I'd also say, we need more nurses. Let's invest in that. Don't just give people an unemployment check. Give them an education and a skill in six months that allows them to succeed in the new future. That's let what me, we should be doing. Let me ask you, uh, since I have you, about the, uh, the, the politics of all this. Uh, the president is making the case very explicitly <laughs> let's go, now. Let's get to something I want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, the president is making the case very explicitly that Joe Biden is um, out of it. Um, and, you know, if you look at polls, there are a large number of people. I think I saw one said 35 percent believe Biden will be replaced. What, what is going on and what should the Biden campaign do to allay any fears people have that the candidate may be slipping in some way? Look, I've talked to Joe Biden multiple times over the last two months. I've had the same conversation with Joe Biden today as I did when I was chief of staff, and he'd come in and tell me what I needed to do up in Congress to get something done and seek his advice on things. So I see him there. He's fully conscious. We talked about a whole host of subjects on the economy, on the politics of this moment, on the vice presidential selection, and that's all I'll leave it at because I respect the privacy of those conversations. But I, I heard the same person on the phone that used to be in my office when I was chief of staff right next door to the vice president's office. And the fact is, this is a, a whole distraction, like everything else, attacking Obama from the fact is that the president of the United States failed in those first costly eight weeks. And this is also a culture of corruption that exists in President Trump's administration. Every attack on Joe Biden is a mirror held up to what Donald Trump has done, and he projects that failure onto somebody else to try to neutralize what is his vulnerability. The attack on Joe Biden about China is really about the fact that President Trump was on bended knee to China. The attack on Joe Biden's skill set is about the fact that we have a president who's President you know, Clorox and Vice President Lysol. Give me a break. And I'll take Joe Biden, and I've seen him energetic. I've seen him working. I've, my phone calls are late into the night with him. So if he's uh, anything, he's got too much energy. I'm the one that's saying, Joe, I got to go. Time up. So I'm very confident in the capacity of the vice president. I knew him when he was a senator, when I worked for President Clinton. I knew him as a colleague when I was in Congress, chief of staff, mayor, and I know him now. And he's the same person I've seen before. He is uh, obviously, uh, you know, where he is in his life. But the fact is, he has the capacities to address the challenges that this country has and will bring a vitality and a sense of also ownership of this rather than say, I'm not responsible. All right. We got to go. Rahm Emanuel, always a pleasure. Thanks, Fareed. Next on GPS, a doctor, best-selling author, gives his prescription on how America should open up. Everybody has an opinion these days about when to reopen the economy and how to do it. And as I've said, we ought to listen to many voices. A compelling set of ideas came out in a New York article this week titled Amid the Coronavirus Crisis, A Regimen for Reentry. It was written by a past GPS guest, Atul Gawande. He plays many roles. He's a staff writer at that magazine. He's a best-selling author. He's also a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Atul. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
So you point out in the article that what you guys have been able to do at your hospital, which has a very large hospital, lots of people, and of course, lots of people in close proximity of the virus, uh, you've been able to put in place a regimen that really works uh, and has resulted in very minimal infections. So tell us the regimen. Yeah. So basically, you know, we're a hospital system with 75,000 people, which is more than uh, 75% of counties in the United States populations. And, um, and like many hospitals, we've managed to avoid becoming sites of transmission. The key to that has been, you know, steps that everybody's heard about, but it's recognizing each of them are flawed. And when you put them together, sort of like a drug cocktail, it's a combination therapy, it can be very effective. The four elements, um, hygiene, uh, in addition to social distancing, that's number two. Number three is symptom screening. Every time I go into work, I am asked, I go to a website on my phone, I fill out a form that says, do I have any of the symptoms of COVID-19? It can be as simple as, do I have a sore throat? Do I have a runny nose? Not just a fever. Fever is present less than 40% of the time when symptoms start. So, you know, if I even have a runny nose, if I have that symptom, then I should be staying home. And that's critical. So if I go on and I say no symptoms, I get a green pass to go in. But if I indicate that I have that runny nose, then I stay home and I get set up for testing. Uh, And, you know, 90% of us will end up screening out that, hey, it was just a cold or whatever. It's not coronavirus. But out of 50,000 people that were at the workplace in the last month, 11,000 of us had those symptoms. 1,400, over 10%, turned out to have coronavirus. And we avoided going in and infecting people. So that's, that is a critical element, and we have to take that very seriously. And then there's masks. And masks deal with the fact that there are people, you know, about half or more of the spread is from people who don't have symptoms. And, um, and those people who don't have symptoms, they are wearing a mask, and that prevents them when, uh, from spreading to others. It turned out that we know now that uh, respiratory droplets can spread, uh, not just when you sneeze or cough, Sneezing is the most likely to spread, but even just talking, loud talking spreads more droplets that can contain virus than soft talking, and wearing a mask ends up blocking those droplets. So um, when, when you talk about these, uh, you also mentioned that you know, really being rigorous, the, the, the hand washing, the mask wearing, the social distancing, uh, the six feet. Uh, you pointed, for example, that we should really be washing our hands maybe five times a day, you say that even 10 times a day is actually almost, almost ideal. Yeah, each of these have elements that, you know, we don't talk enough about. We all talk about it. We should reopen, reopen. But let's talk about what it takes to be really good at entering without infecting one another. And one example is hand washing more than 10 times a day cuts the likelihood that you will get infected by half. And at least that's what turned up in the SARS epidemic, and it seems likely to apply here. Um, so what does that mean? Anytime you go into a group space, before you enter that environment, you wash your hands. When you leave, you wash your hands or you get a hand sanitizer. And while you're in that space among people, every two to three hours, you should be washing hands again, right? It's, it's making it a significant habit. That won't solve the problem just by itself. Social distancing then is the same thing. Six feet, you got to understand it's not like a viral law. There is no stop sign that the virus won't, won't pass six feet. Um, most of the cases can be avoided that way. 
at, um, but you know, people sneeze and they can propel virus if they're at the peak of infectivity up to 15, 20 feet away. So it's not the only answer. It's putting each of these steps together. The mask is very interesting because what, what is hard about it and people struggle with this is that it's about, I'm protecting you, you protect me. There is some protection from the mask, possibly because of filtration, a lot because you don't touch your mouth and nose, but the biggest value is you don't spread the virus. If 60% of us wear a mask that's 60% effective and a double layer cotton mask is at least that effective if it's well fitting, we can shut down the virus. You put these together and you have those steps become a solution. Uh, how hard is it to change culture? I mean, this may be, a, you might have to put on your writer's hat more than your doctor's hat on this one, but um, is it, I mean, can we, can, will we do it? Uh, so I think the answer is yes, but it is, it is the hardest part of this journey. Um, our culture right now is debating, we, we all are saying we want safety and we want freedom. Keep me safe, leave me alone. The culture that works in the hospital that is making this successful is the culture that says, I never want to be the one to infect somebody and kill them. I said, there are hundreds of thousands of people right now who have the virus and they do not know it. We all have to act as if I have the virus and that I care enough about my neighbors, I care enough about my community, I care about my family, that I think I never want to be the one to infect somebody, so I'm going to put on a mask. I'm going to keep my social distance. I'm going to wash my hands regularly because I never want to be that one. And, and understand, there are going to be people who are not going to follow the rules. It's just going to be the case. But I, you know, we, the nice thing about what we're learning is we put these steps together and we all don't have to be perfect. If we get to over 60% of us using a mask with over 60% effectiveness and following these basic steps, we will, we will clamp down on this. And, um, you know, we don't want to take those steps of leaving our lockdown until the levels are dropping. And, you know, moving out now with those hundreds of thousands of people unlocking down will guarantee that spread that wide. But I think in the next two weeks, we will see the country doing better and better. And we got to be talking about how we come out, not whether we come out. It's how we do it. Atul Gawande, always a pleasure. Great to see you, Fareed. Next on GPS, the anti-China rhetoric from the White House heated up again this week. I will talk to Richard House about the prospects of a new Cold War between Washington and Beijing. On Thursday, the president told Fox Business he wasn't interested in speaking to his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. In fact, Trump said America could cut off its whole relationship with China. Is that even possible in this interconnected age? Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of a terrific new book titled The World, A Brief Introduction. We'll get to that in a second, but I want to first ask you, Richard, um, we now have an almost bipartisan consensus that we've got to get very tough on China. Trump is saying what he's saying, and Biden's attacks on Trump are not that this is a bad idea, but that he was there first and that Trump has actually been cozying up to China. You heard Rahm Emanuel say that a, a bit earlier. Um, where does this go, and is it a wise uh, strategy for America? You know, Fareed, it's one of those times where I actually begin to question the desirability and wisdom of bipartisanship. <laughs> I think this, this anti-China push 
uh, underestimates China's limits and weaknesses. I think it probably exaggerates its ambitions. But most important, it seems to me, to place China at the center of American foreign policy is misplaced. We can and should push back against China, but that's not going to make us competitive. That's all about our schools, our, our infrastructure, our research and development funding. And overseas, we can push back against China, but that's not going to make us safe against the next pandemic or against terrorism or against climate change. We really need a 21st century foreign policy, and pushing back against China is only, a, is only one part of it. And what do you think is behind this sort of um, the, the Republican uh, push, Mike Pompeo, Peter Navarro, to investigate the origins of the of the uh, the virus? Because um, even they seem to uh, acknowledge, even Fox News reports that they think that this was essentially accidental. That it might have accidentally uh, gotten out of a lab, or it might have accidentally gotten out into the wet market. Uh, what, you know, I'm trying to understand what difference does that make? What, wh- why is this push about, you know, are they culpable in some way, even if they are admittedly, you know, it happened by incompetence or accident? Look, we, we could learn something and in principle it could help us deal with the, the next pandemic or even prevent it. But let's just call a spade a spade. It's deflection. It's politics. And China, look, China should be roundly criticized for reading. I think you'd agree with that how it handled the outbreak uh, uh, of this pandemic and that these markets never should have been open. They silenced the public health people. They, they misrepresented. They didn't cooperate with the world. But even if China had behaved well, even if they'd been a textbook citizen, that still doesn't let us off the hook. Here we are four or five months later. We still can't test anything like uh, the scale we need to. It doesn't explain our lack of uh, stockpiled equipment. So I think it's right to look at China. I think it's right to ask for a full investigation. We may, in fact, learn something. But let's not kid ourselves. Physician, heal heal thyself. We should also take lessons about where we got it wrong. I want to look at one of these issues through the prism of your book. Um, You know, you talk about in the book uh, that globalization is a reality. How we deal with it, you say, is a choice. Very, very well put, it seems to me. And when I look at the WHO, I sort of think about it in, the, in that context, which is everybody's attacking it. But the truth is, we have these global problems, these pandemics, the, these viruses that spill over borders. And then the question is, can you have some kind of global response? And the truth is, the WHO is very small, pretty, you know, it has, it has a, a modest funding. And most importantly, it is not allowed to push back against other countries. Yes, it didn't push back against China. Absolutely clear. It also doesn't push back against the United States. That's, you know, we've designed these international institutions not to deal with the global problems. And it strikes me as a perfect example of the point you make in your book, that the problems are getting global, but the solutions are remain local and national. Exactly right. There's an enormous gap between the global challenges and the global responses. One of the most common phrases in our business is international community. And the deep, dark secret, there isn't much of one. In every one of the areas, whether it's climate change or global health, we need to narrow the gap. And if it turns out it's impossible to improve the WHO because China and other sovereign governments won't allow it, then let's form a club. Let's form an arrangement where ourselves and other like-minded countries set the rules, build the capacities to help the world. So it's, it's not WHO or nothing. That's the best approach in principle. But if it isn't in practice, let's work around it. We also seem to be ceding a certain amount of leadership. President Trump has now said, uh, you know, maybe we'll cut back our, our uh, contributions 
to uh, to very much by 90 percent. Um, wouldn't the Chinese then just say, all right, we'll we'll expand. I mean, that's what they've done in the U.N. Every time we've stepped back, the Chinese say, great, this gives us more opportunities for global leadership. So I don't get how we're going to dominate the international system by constantly abdicating. Well, the reason you you don't get it is because we won't. Uh, we're creating all sorts of space and opportunity for China. And even though China is essentially, in many cases, pushing a really flawed agenda, if there's no pushback, they're going to prevail. So we need to be more involved. If one lesson of the pandemic is, we, is that we ignore globalization and ignore the, ignore the world at our, at our peril, the other has got to be not only is isolationism deeply flawed, but unilateralism is. We've got to get on the field. We've got to play. You can't win the game unless you play. And all too often, this administration has taken itself off the field. Let me ask you finally, uh, Richard, about American soft power. This is a, you know, a concept that uh, a friend of ours, Joe Nye, uh, wrote about a lot. When you, when you think the world looks at the way that everybody seems to have uh, screwed up in the United States, it's not just Trump. The CDC got the wrong tests out. The Department of HHS hasn't been able to put a testing uh, regimen in place. Um, do you think that affects the way that people look at American power? I mean, you, were, you spent so much time as an American diplomat. Uh, do you think the fact that the United States is clearly not the world leader in the response to this COVID, will it affect our ability to, to persuade pressure, uh, encourage uh, uh, things around the world? The short answer for it is yes. You know, foreign policy is not a, just about what, what military people or diplomats say and do. It's also about who and what we are, the example we set. And if we had been incompetent in dealing with this virus, that would have sent the message. If American politics were functional rather than dysfunctional, that would set a, a powerful message. When we, when we had something like the financial crisis in 2008, that sent a powerful message, but the wrong kind of message. So everything we are as a society, as an economy, as a political entity, that says something to the world. And people around the world get up in the morning and they say, do we want to be more or less like the United States? Do we want to emulate them, depend on them? Are they, are they impressive? Are they reliable? And so a big part of foreign policy is not foreign. A big part of foreign policy is it was what we are. As always, Richard, huge pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks. Next on GPS, if you're expecting massive change for the better or worst post-pandemic, think again. That is what my next guest says, and she wrote the book on pandemics. Four years ago, Sonia Shah, a science reporter, came on GPS to talk about the outbreak we were worried about back then, the Zika virus. At the end of the conversation, I asked her what we needed to do to combat the next global health crisis. You know, we need uh, veterinarians, wildlife biologists, social scientists, political scientists, as well as our biomedical experts to really come together to start a, a much more collaborative approach to solving these health crises. Just like the warnings from Bill Gates were barely heeded, Sonia Shah's suggestion fell on mostly deaf ears. And now here we are amidst a global crisis like we have never seen before. Sonia is the author of the 2016 book, Pandemic, Tracking Contagions from Cholera to Ebola and Beyond. Welcome, Sonia. Nice to be here. We've had these pathogens around. We've seen them, and we've seen uh, uh, we've seen them increasing. You SARS, MERS, avian flu, H1N1, Zika. What is it um, that is making you know our our world so much more conducive to these outbreaks? 
Well, we know that most of these um, pathogens that are re-emerging and emerging today um, originate in the bodies of animals, um, mostly wild animals. And the reason that's happening is because um, we are changing the patterns of how our bodies interact with the bodies of animals, and that's because we're destroying so much wildlife habitat. Um, we have covered over half of the landscape of the planet with our homes, towns, mines, farms, etc., and that leaves very little habitat for wildlife species. So that's partly why we have this biodiversity crisis where we're losing 150 species a day. So given, given that you have an example about how the West Nile virus uh, was always around, but how the loss in biodiversity made it lethal. Yeah, there's a lot of examples of this. But with West Nile virus, for example, we, um, it's, a, it's a virus of migratory birds from Africa. Those birds have been landing in North America on their migration patterns for many years, probably hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but we didn't have West Nile virus outbreaks here in the United States until 1999. Um, and uh, one reason that might be is because up until recently, we had a diversity of bird species in our domestic bird flocks. We had birds like woodpeckers and rails, and, and these diverse bird species were actually really good at repelling West Nile virus. But what happened over the past 50 years or so is we've lost a lot of that avian biodiversity. So woodpeckers and rails are pretty rare now, but in a lot of places instead we have a lot of robins and crows. These are bird species that can live in any kind of, kind of disturbed environment, which is what we've left for them. And it turns out that while woodpeckers and rails are really um, good at repelling West Nile virus, uh, robins and crows are actually carriers of West Nile virus. So the fewer woodpeckers and rails you have around and the more robins and crows you have around, the more West Nile virus you have around. And so it be just becomes more and more likely that a mosquito will bite an infected bird in your domestic bird uh, flocks and then bite a human being. And that's what happened in 1999. And that was the trigger for the first outbreak of West Nile virus in North America. And since then, it's spread across the country. Um, do you think that we will change uh, in some fundamental ways uh, the kind of things you were talking about, our interaction with nature, or even more generally um, change our behavior in ways that, uh, that will be meaningful. You know, people wonder whether the handshake is dead, whether the office is dead. What, what, what do you think, having looked at some of this in the past, um, what's your prediction? I think a lot's going to depend on the stories we tell about where this thing came from and why it sort of caused all the death and destruction it has caused. I think as long as we think of it as something outside of ourselves and that we're the passive victims of, then um, I don't really have too much hope that, that we're going to fundamentally change our relationships with each other. If you look at the history of other infectious diseases, um, the thing that's so frustrating, because I've been writing about these for many years now, uh, is that we don't change. You know, we got rid of malaria, for example, in the United States after having it for hundreds of years, even after we knew how to prevent it, even after we had good cures for it. We had it right up until the 1940s. And the reason we finally got rid of it was not because we did anything to change the epidemiology of malaria on purpose. It was because we decided to electrify the rural South, and that kind of ended the malarious way of life. Um, there's a similar story for cholera and a lot of other pathogens that we've conquered. We've done it basically by mistake, um, you know, through sort of other means of social development or economic need or commerce or things like that. Um, so we don't really purposely go after infectious diseases as much as we might think that we do. Um, so 
I think the idea that we're going to have this hugely changed world after this, after this pandemic is maybe exaggerated. I think the what I've seen in history of looking at these pathogens over time is that we usually go right back to business as usual. As soon as the thing ends, as soon as we have a drug, as soon as we have a vaccine, as soon as we can kind of ghettoize these diseases into marginalized populations, um, we don't really do the fundamental social change that we could do. Um, so, you know, I think I think we we can we can hope that we'd have a bigger change that would push us in the right direction. But I think it really depends on how we understand this moment we're in. So, Nisha, pleasure to have you on. You're a very important voice in all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Next on GPS, what would France be without baguettes and croissants and frog's leg and fromage? Well, les Francais are now being asked to do their patriotic duty and eat more of one of those foodstuffs. Find out which one when we come back. Two and a quarter centuries ago, French Queen Marie Antoinette met her end under the revolutionary guillotine. A famous legend, one that is almost certainly false, holds that when she was told the peasants had no bread to eat during a famine, the queen callously responded, let them eat cake. Well, to quote something Mark Twain almost certainly didn't say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And all this brings me to my question of the week. What foodstuff are French people being urged to consume now? Croissants, frog's legs, cheese, or baguettes? Stay tuned and we'll bring you the correct answer. I have two great new books for you this week. Richard Haas's The World, A Brief Introduction, and The New Class War by Michael Lind. You've already heard plenty about them both earlier in the show. Suffice to say, they're well worth your time. The answer to my question this week is C. The French dairy industry is facing a glut of spoiled product as consumption of the nation's formidable catalog of fromage declined 60% in just three weeks after Paris enacted a nationwide lockdown on March 17th. The Guardian reports French consumers have stocked up on essential foods instead, and since most varieties of French cheese go bad in eight weeks or less, pallets of product are putrefying as I speak. Quelle horreur! A little to the south and the east, Italian cheesemakers, according to Fortune Italia, have attempted to wait out the oversupply by switching from making mozzarella to concocting cacio cavolo, a variety that requires months to age. Customers can even buy so-called cacio bonds, paying upfront now for guaranteed delivery when the cheese matures. But the French industry is taking a different tack, with Michel Lacoste of France's version of the Dairy Board telling CNN he expects consumers to feast on fromage in order to, quote, maintain the French culture, the French tradition, the French heritage that we all share. Well, we at GPS are always happy to help out our friends in France, so feel free to send us any extra brie, camembert, or chevre. And if you want to throw in a few bottles of burgundy to wash it all down while you're at it, we will accept. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week, and I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.